Yo, yo, listener, this is the Plastic Pills podcast. Uh, you have clicked on, either on purpose or accidentally, our Adia Lacan super episode. Super, super, episode. Super, super, super. It's a big super. one. Which you can, which big you can probably tell from the length. Beep, beep, uh, I'm not sure. It's, prob- it's probably, I-, I hope it's not three hours. It's somewhere around there. Anyway, we smashed two episodes together on Adieu Lacan, which is something, you know, all of us have to say, maybe, at some point or another. You you read Deleuze and Guattari, it's Adieu Lacan. You get too dependent on analysis because you just love hearing yourself speak and filling space. Maybe it's time to Adieu Lacan and get a hobby. But no. Today, Adieu Lacan, Bye to Our Boy, is the title of a film. So it is a film episode, which is in two parts. So brace yourselves. First, we watched it. We kind of mold over our thoughts and uh, questions. It's kind of like a review, not just of the film, but review in the sense of reviewing what what psychoanalysis and Lacan are about a little more generally so you can get caught up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the second half, we actually got the director of the film and writer, actually, writer-director of the film to come on and answer some of those questions that we had about his depiction of Lacan on the silver screen. The only depiction I've actually seen of Lacan on the silver screen. So it's one of the few. And that's the first director we've talked to, I believe. Is that? Oh yeah, we've definitely never, I I think I would have remembered talking to another director. (laughs) Outside of our comfort zone, but inside of our intellectual curiosity. Yeah, so if you're looking at the length of this episode and not sure whether you want to commit, I think you do. We mashed what could have been two episodes into one here. So I don't know how you listen to podcasts. If you're driving, make sure it's a long drive. If you're at the business factory, make sure you don't have to pause it for your boss. And if you're trying to put on something boring while you fall asleep, well, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're curious about what a psychoanalytic treatment session, set of sessions, what a psychoanalytic treatment regime looks like, this film actually fills in this complete, almost lack of any kind of representations of the psychoanalysis process, the clinical psychoanalysis process that Lacan and others would have been involved in. So this is an awesome film. It fills in a gap, actually. I mean, what if you were like The Sopranos, right? You saw that depiction. Well, this one is even more realistic, and there's a lot there. There's a lot of depth. There's Easter eggs of all sorts, not only of of French statues and things, but also of Lacanian ideas. If you're familiar with Lacan a little bit, you might spot a few things in there. It's really a, a, a it's really a smorgasbord, I think. Yeah, links in the show notes if you want to watch it before listening to this. But it was the source material on which the film is based was written by an actual analyzand of Lacan, so there's some degree of accuracy here. Yeah, Betty Milan fictionalized her experience of uh, psychoanalysis, and th- this film is based on that, which which ironically makes it feel very realistic and very, very, um, yeah, true to what a Lacanian psychotherapist would do, right? And although it is not 100% spoiler-free, we don't really give too much away. And I guess it's not even really the type of film we're giving away. <laughs> Plot has much effect on the experience anyway. It's true. I was actually thinking about that because the director himself ended up um, 
like kind of letting slip a bunch of spoilers that I think in our review we made like a concerted effort to not talk about. Like I think maybe like one or two things. And then as he was saying that, I kind of did realize, I thought to myself, I was like, well, it's true. This is the kind of film that like you're not really waiting exactly. It's about like watching this process unfold in front of you and like whether you, I, I can't imagine like whether you know certain things happen or not, it will make much of a difference to your enjoyment of the film. So Yeah. If you see a lineup of people waiting to go see this film in a theater or something, shouting out the ending is not going to ruin it like it would a Thor movie exactly. or something like that, right? And if you do <laughs> see a lineup of people waiting to see this film, you should probably go hang out with them because I they're probably cool. <laughs> yeah, if they're interested in Lacan, which I have been, and the research I did for this episode kind of brought that back, so it's not that's nice. So without further ado, <laughs> oh. okay. Why did why did the unconscious do that? Without further ado, that wasn't in your script. No, I was reading the word adieu when I said that, oh, which is why funny. it came out. Without further ado. Because it's the title on my, on got my it, uh, point form. Here is us Much. from two weeks ago. Oh yeah, this is the one other thing we recorded it two weeks ago. So I used a shit mic instead of this mic. So forgive me that I'm a perfectionist when it comes to my mics. Couldn't use my good one anyway. Bad mic, then good mic. Us again from two weeks after we recorded the first one. Joined by Richard Leeds, the writer director of Adieu Lacan. Um, so. We hope you enjoy this uh, entry into the fantasy world of cinema. And thank you very much for listening. And without much yep. more adieu about nothing. <laughs> adieu. Adieu. Well, the face-to-face -face is over. Seriema no longer needs to look at me. She can lie down and listen to herself. It's a victory. People live their lives without listening to themselves, with a tin ear. Some even die without ever listening to themselves, eternally deaf to their own speech, to their own body, which screams rather than talks, a deafness that in itself is enough to justify psychoanalysis. If it still needs to be justified, All right, listeners, we are in different time zones. And Pills is without his regular recording equipment. So if it sounds a little funky, forgive me. But yeah. I'm recording on vacation. Because that's how important it is. Yeah, you just sound further away. You, you do sound further, further away. away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm right here, boys. Oh, <laughs> West Coast. Yeah, it is. Anyway, we got a we got a double header. I think we're probably going to mash these two episodes together. And if that doesn't end up working out, then you'll never hear this audio anyway. <laughs> <laughs> cut, cut, cut. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to find out how to pronounce uh, his last name. Eric, did you find out? <laughs> no, that interview is in French and it was just a snippet. I have okay. to do more research. So we'll say Richard Leeds or Richard Ledes. Yeah. Just cut around the right one. But we, as we know from the film as well, your identity is not in what you call yourself in any right. case. It's in what you do not call yourself. True. So if you're wondering what we're talking about, we watched an indie film. I could say a very indie film called uh, Adieu Lacan. Yeah, and it stars uh, David Patrick Kelly as Jacques Lacan, who is like a fairly well-known, like well -known, or he's kind of one of those actors that like, 
you wouldn't know him by name, but if you saw him, you might recognize him because he's been in like a bunch of stuff. I think he was in um, from the same. I always forget the name for some reason because I wasn't like that big of a fan of it. It's the same director as Mulholland Drive that showed that like he had a comeback. Oh, twin Twin Peaks, right? Yeah, yeah, Twin Peaks. So he was in he was in that and a few other things. He's um, been in Gossip Girl. Was he? Was he? Some other stuff. Maybe apparently, maybe that it could just be a, a couple shows i don't know if it was a whole uh, season or the whole show <laughs> could have been just a cameo he definitely yeah. resembles lacan as well he does he had a convincing french intellectual aesthetic if that makes sense <laughs> even though the movie was in english a lacanian gestalt for sure chomping on the cigar always helps with the french aesthetic exactly exactly anyway we're not going to do anything like a regular film review which is what did you think about the acting? What did you think about the blocking? Because none of us know shit about that, and we have no problem admitting it. So maybe yeah. we have opinions, but those are probably not the ones that we're going to spend too much time on. Yeah. Uh, we do have all opinions on Lacan, however. Oh, I just have to drop in one more thing that David Patrick Kelly is in probably a role people may be familiar with. If you've seen a little movie from the 70s called The Warriors, uh, it's this dystopian movie about all these gangs in New oh, York. Yeah. And he plays the guy that, that delivers that famous line, you know, Warriors, come out and play. Really? That was him? That's David fucking Patrick <laughs> Kelly. He plays, uh, he plays, uh, oh, what's the character's name? Luther. He plays, yeah, Luther and the Warriors. Yeah, the crazy guy who. Uh, That's so funny. Apparently, according to Wikipedia, the, uh, main characters. According to Wikipedia, that might have been his first ever film role, which is well, pretty that, cool. So that puts that uh, now I recognize him totally from hearing about that role. So that puts. I mean, so you can see he's you know he's an actor who's been uh you know who who's been in the business for a long time. I can say. Um, but I will also say, like, I know we're going to talk about Lacan. I mean, I did enjoy the film. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if that's just because I'm interested in Lacanian theory, right? I can't say whether or not people who don't know about Lacanian theory will find it interesting. But I, I liked it uh, for that reason alone, because it's pretty rare to find a film that actually, like, focuses on, you know, a, a, well, in this case, it's really the, his practitioner side, uh, his analyst side, not necessarily his theoretical side. But still, you know, for, for me, someone who influenced uh, the way I think about uh, the world and people. So to see a film that sort of uh, depicts uh, this figure, it, it was enjoyable. And I think yeah. it was yeah, successful enough, in a few different ways. Yeah, there's enough Easter eggs in there, definitely. I'm not a Lacanian, but I am, in theory, adjacent to that sort of thing. So there's enough Easter eggs in there for you to, for, to keep you happy, right? I think there's like, well... The Easter eggs references like at one point there is Henri Lefebvre's book The Differentialist Manifesto oh, yeah. there is like a, a Sophocles there was I think I think uh, at one point the um, the um, uh, administrator in the office brought in a book by Alain de Baton or something like that and <laughs> set it on his desk that really? would have been that would have been out of time that would have been out of time maybe you meant someone I, else Alain, Alain I, I, Badu I'm probably getting the name wrong uh there's one by rousseau i noticed the noble the noble savage was I, brought up and it was in a book on the desk so there's like yeah there's easter eggs there's definitely easter eggs. yeah there's yeah. a lot of stuff in there sometimes you have to pause and go back and like check them out but uh they're there they're interesting anyway i just want to say 
Well, you can get this thing on, I think, the Apple Apple Movies app and the Amazon Prime app. It might cost you like four bucks or whatever it is. Um, but you're not not everyone's gonna like this movie. I thought we should add I sh- we should add that. If your favorite film is uh, Infinity War, this may not be the film for you. It all takes place in one room. It's a one-to-one aspect ratio. It's black and white, so it's the the artsy fartsy bits. So if you're in, if you're into Lacan, I think you're gonna like it a lot. But if you are the type of person who needs to be constantly stimulated, a casual it's, infotainment consumer, maybe not. It really has, and I think this was intentional. Uh, it feels like like a like a play. Like it's got that kind of like theater feel to it. Um, and and in fact. As we, as I found out, actually in the credits, I was like, "Oh crap! Oh, it is actually based on a novel and then a play written by Betty Milan, who is a Brazilian uh, Lacanian psychoanalyst, um, and she actually uh, was analyzed by Lacan in the seventies, late seventies, mid seventies, and the novel and the play, I think, are loosely based on her analysis, though they're not. I, I, I from what I read. It's not like a full out like biographical account of her. I mean, the, in in the film, at least the the name is changed. Um, it's not Betty Milan, right? It's some other. It's another woman, and we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so it does have that kind of feel, uh, like that kind of theater feel when you're wa- when you're watching it. Um, I remember just I actually kept thinking I was like, wow, this just like because the whole thing, as as Pill says, takes place pretty much the whole thing takes place in the one room in the analyst in the analyst and kind of like uh, back and forth. And I don't envy the task of the writer or the filmmaker who has to make Lacan's writing and methods understandable and palatable to a wider audience than they normally would be. I mean, after this, I went back and read, um, I went back and read the mirror stage and I'm just like, oh my fucking God. Like I, I read it like, eight years ago and now reading it again today i've read it a couple times but but i I feel like i understand a little tiny bit more of it every time but like i still couldn't explain i couldn't just sit down and explain it to somebody it's really difficult so the way i think the balance was like perfect between a kind of drama you can follow a story you can kind of follow and dropping in those things that if you're sort of in the know and you are familiar with Lacanian psychoanalysis, you get the sense that there is a solid theoretical understanding behind this film. There's just enough in there to indicate that, but not too much for the uninitiated to just become completely lost in in imagos and letters of the unconscious and and all that stuff. And it's not too explainy. And what I kept going back and forth with is uh, like, we think we know Lacan because he read his books. But this is someone who like spoke to Lacan, was analyzed by him. And then we can ask, who is Lacan? Is it the author? You know, no. <laughs> is it the analyst? No. So we, it's uh, giving aspects of the same persona that we ascribe one name to. That's really not one name. So I thought it was interesting to be like, is this her experience in analysis that made that, that wrote this? Is this the, the writer of the film that added this in there? Is this uh, someone who's familiar with Lacan's work after the fact, checking it and dropping it in? So it was interesting trying to figure out, you know, what's unsaid, as the movie says, 
And Lacan himself quote says something to the effect in there of uh, the analyst is always acting but pretending not to be. Right. And it's worth mentioning, too, that the director, uh, Richard uh, Leddies or Leeds, God, we're going to have to find out how to pronounce that last name. But um, he actually has a Ph.D. in, I believe it's some kind of like uh, history of psychology. Uh, I wasn't exactly clear. Like I saw him mention it in an interview that I watched, but on his own website, I don't know. Well, you can ask him in. A yeah, half an we hour. will. We will find out. We will. Well, a half an hour in fake time. Exactly. Exactly. So I will find out exactly. But the point is, he has like a real. He has. He has a real understanding, like like an like an academic understanding of Lacan. I think based on that that background. But I, anyway, I just wanted to say it was really refreshing because of the depictions of, especially psychoanalysis and therapy in you know popular media or even academics, I could say, in popular media. They're either like savant geniuses who are antisocial. The only thing they care about is their object of study. And then especially when psychoanalysis is depicted in film or, or TV, it's, you know, tell me about your childhood mm -hmm. with some like caricature of Freud. But this shows the method as someone who's uh, done analysis. It really shows the method and it, picks up on the right parts, like where there's those fallings in language. I think at one point she says language trips and falls over itself. And then you as the analyzand are thinking, why did I say that? And then that's the thing that's in your your mind for the rest of the week. Yeah. So I don't know. Should we, Pills, did you want to talk a little bit more about Lacanian analytic method before we get into kind of giving a very like brief setup of what's what the movie is about? Yeah, we should actually, we haven't talked about Lacan directly for a while, so maybe we should refresh on that. Like, as opposed to the other psychoanalysts, Melanie Klein, uh, who deals often with child childhood and play and that kind of thing, and Freud, I think everybody knows Freud. Uh, Carl the, Jung the, and Melanie Klein. <laughs> yeah, and that's the ego. Not, let's ego not mention Klein. Carl Jung. Let's <laughs> not bring him up. But anyway, <laughs> the thing that Lacan is most uh, different from his colleagues in in that respect, and even the psychoanalytic association that he got kicked out of slash left, is this emphasis on language. And this is something I think the film got very fascinatingly correct. Mm -hmm. Focusing on her words, her reflections on her words, and there's also a few idiosyncrasies of Lacan himself that come out in the film, like him ending sessions abruptly. Sometimes the sessions would be 10 minutes long and he'd just say, okay, we're done. I'll see you next time. And then demand the same payment for every session. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've, He's talked about this too. This demanding payment thing is you cannot have, you cannot have a, what appears to be a friendship with an analyst end. The analyst must be the figure that is outside. This is a paid relationship. And there's stories of him like sitting while the while the analyzand is speaking, you know, pouring their heart out over their trauma, he's sitting there like counting the francs and clicking the coins on his desk and they go, you're not listening to me. And then he'll go, okay, the session's done. Yeah. But the whole point of this, you're not listening to me. I guess the mindset to these days would be, I'm a consumer, I have paid for your time, you owe me this time. And then if Lacan is the genius that many of us think he is, that he's trying to provoke that response to say, 
look, I'm not your dad. I'm not your buddy. I don't owe you anything. And just because you paid me doesn't define my responses to you. Yeah. Which is different from a therapist, right? I often bash therapy as opposed to psychoanalysis for for specifically that reason. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a like the the part about the variable length sessions too is th- this idea too about like that if I, th- I think like part of the theory behind it is like if the the analyzand has this idea of like okay I've got like 50 minutes or whatever, then like their unconscious is going to kind of like set themselves up so that um, they can protect like kind of the insights around it within the framework of that time. So if you say ahead of time, like, okay, like the timing is going to be what it is, then like you, your unconscious can't adapt uh, to the length of the session. And therefore um, the analyst instead in the Lacanian context can kind of intervene and stop. And, it, and it, I think it's a form of intervention to basically get the analyst in to reflect. So if there's like a moment, a puncture kind of that happens um, or like, I guess what, what some might call like a potential breakthrough, at least from the analyst's perspective, then they can just stop the session and sort of force the analyst in to sit with, with, with what happened and how it ended. That's the theory behind it. I don't know. I say, I don't know. And you get up. True. You're going to leave me with I don't know. I can't stand this way of ending a session, this sudden and and brutal interruption. 100 francs. I didn't withdraw any money. Then go and get it. I've heard less charitable interpretations and stories of like, you know, look, Lacan collecting 100 francs from you know like 20 patients a day because he's having these like short like 10 minute sessions and that it's like a money grab so you know you can there's a way of interpreting it cynically i think the theory behind it is kind of interesting but i think you would have to like for that to be the case it would have to be the case that sometimes you'd have sessions that would go on for three hours right because like it would keep going so it'd have to be variable both ways which apparently it was i don't know for sure but of the three of us i probably may have the most kind of stereotypical illusions about what goes on in psychoanalytic therapy. But my basic notion is that it's all sort of based on, again, the Freudian talking cure, the idea that you just, you get the person to speak, you get the patient, the analysand to speak and the analyst acts, you know, plays that role, but, and acts like a blank canvas, whatever background you need in a certain sense, whatever psychodrama is working itself out through your language and through your the narratives you're telling about yourself, the analyst is supposed to be almost like a blank canvas or ready to adopt any sort of oppositional roles that emerge in the sort of console. It's like if it's a problem with a, a kind of primordial father or mother or any kind of thing like that, the, the analyst is ready there to be that canvas you need on which to paint your sort of <laughs> i guess like paint your unconscious in a certain way but at least that the, the talking cure anyway it seems like the the basic thing to bring up first yeah i had an analyst and i kind of asked why, why do you even do the laying down thing why do you lay down on a couch instead of like talk face to face and he described it as you need to both be looking at the same thing which is not really the thing 
You need to be like, they're, they're a functionary where you bounce your language off of, but it's so that you can see the thing that you're talking about and the, the positionality is supposed to help with that, which is, again, I think it's unique to psychoanalysis, the laying on the couch, as yeah. opposed to other forms of therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy. Definitely. But you can also see there what the, the symbolic imaginary triad, how they show their functions and the purpose of analysis. Because it's not what do you not know about yourself that you have to learn, but it's what do you know about yourself that you don't want to know? Or what do you know about yourself that you want to pretend that you don't know? And that's where the, the loop is, the lying loop where you're lying to yourself about what you already know. So yeah, in my experience, you learn what you know you don't want to know rather than learning what you don't know. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to add to that, say there's a certain, there's a certain thing that the analyst needs to do in those situations is ferret out avoidance <laughs> and when you're trying to avoid the issues and you're substituting some other less important issue for the real issue when you're talking about one thing in order to avoid talking about something else which i feel like you know that move that that film made me feel like you know someone who's into theory that's what i'm doing all the time is avoiding the real problems because i'm talking about theory and never really you know but what like am i listening to myself am i listening to my body like i'm i'm putting myself in the audiences that lacan is speaking to when i'm reading his papers the the so the expert audience but i never put myself in the position of the analysis to think of like am i really you know, am I living out these principles or am I just sort of learning them at a distance and otherwise, you know, persisting in my otherwise repressive ways? Yeah, I think what's- there's a there's a great line from the film where she goes sure. She says to Lacan while she's being analyzed, I don't even know why I'm in France. And then he vo there's a voiceover where he says she doesn't know why she's in France because she doesn't listen to herself speak. Speak. I don't really know why I'm in France. She doesn't know why because she doesn't listen to yeah, herself. Yeah, that's exactly. the line I was thinking of that he kind of goes on in his monologue, which I love those little almost uh, yeah. internal Lacanian monologues. I thought those were crucial, but that's just how it made me feel like, man, I'm do I do this all the fucking time. I'm probably a mess. If I did psychoanalysis now, the person would probably just be like, nah, you, you're too far gone. Sorry, buddy. We can't, yeah, train, I, I, we can't train you at this age. I actually think it's it might be worth just kind of like giving a brief uh, setup of like what happens in the film. Because I think actually it's, it I, I kind of decided as, as I was listening to you both talk that it's worth kind of telling the audience. OK, so the movie is about this woman, um, Sariema, right, who who is going to who went to France from Brazil um, to get analysis from Lacan. And and like the basic setup is I think she she had two miscarriages and, and had an issues with her. I think I don't know if it was her boyfriend or her husband. I, I forget if they were actually married or not, but they tr they tried to have children and that like led to a kind of crisis and like without spoiling it. So that's basically like the setup of why she's there. Um, but I did also want to say something about uh, psych about Lacanian psychoanalytic technique. Um. You know, one of the things, you, uh, Eric, you were saying, you were talking about how the the psychoanalyst acts as kind of like a black canvas. And I've got here, I've been I've been looking and seeing the film um, made me want to revisit uh, Bruce Fink's um, A Clinical Introduction to the Lacanian Psychoanalysis, because I think he goes over some really like 
key aspects of just like the technique itself, right? So one of the things he talks about is like that the analyst, and I think this in a way shows up in the film, um, has to combat this idea of like the subject supposed to know, which means like when you go into analysis, I think there's a tendency of the analyst and to, to want to think of the analyst as some kind of figure of authority, right? That they have knowledge that they're going to share with you. And that's actually like not what the analyst is supposed to do, right? The analyst, the only authority, uh, Fink talks about this, um, if there is an authority to be respected in the analytic setting, it is the manifestations of the unconscious in, in the analyst and slips, mistakes, expressions of surprise and so on, right? So the so that's and actually that fits into what you were just saying, uh, that quote in the movie, right, where he says, oh, she would know, you know, if she heard herself talk because the authority, right, the actual authority is their own unconscious, their own speaking. And I thought I also thought it was interesting in the film when he says, I think he comments in one of the voiceover parts, uh, the Lacan character, you know, that people very rarely, some people go through their whole life, right? Like not actually hearing themselves speak, not actually mm -hmm. hearing themselves, right? And it's like the analyst uh, setting is meant really to be where you can hear yourself speak. And I think that fits into what you were saying, Pills, about why is it that analysts want you to sit on the couch not facing them, right? Because if you are seeing the other person, and this is another thing that comes up in the book, by the way, if you are seeing your analyst as a person in front of you, right, then that can distract you from just listening to yourself, right? So like by not looking at someone, you can, there's a more chance, this is at least the theory behind it, right? There's more chance you're going to hear the words you're using, you're going to hear yourself talk, right? Where, and I think this is where the psychoanalytic theory or the Lacanian theory of like the imaginary comes in. If you look, if you look face to face, you get all kinds of weird imaginary ideas, fantasies about the other person. And this is another thing that has to be combated in analysis, right? That, you, you know, thinking about the analyst as a person can get in the way, right? You, you start imagining. As an other. If exactly. you're thinking about what they're thinking of you, then you're not hearing yourself. That's exactly. exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's one of the th another things that they're always combating, right? Is like you have to make sure you, in fact, you have to, the, the goal of the analyst is to be an other, but uh, like not another person, like the cap, the capital O other, uh, as opposed to, which is the, the other in yourself, right? To be able to hear yourself. I don't know if we have any psychoanal psychoanalyst, psychoanalysis cynics in the audience, but one thing that struck me was how easy it would be to see this all as just a grift. Because the only thing that Lacan, or one of the only things Lacan says, except for a few probing questions are, you know, go on, continue speaking. Yeah. Speak, speak more. I'm and listening. Then what else? And then collects his hundred bucks at the end of the day. So it, it's totally like, oh, this is the easiest job ever. You sit there and ask someone to speak. But I guess it's uh, what separates someone who's who's capable and good at it is can you push into that, that direction or not? Because if you're just looking at it from the outside, it almost seems like, well, this is the, this is the easiest grift ever. Yeah. It's the easiest like self-help guru thing. You don't even have to give advice. Yeah. You can't even tell if he's listening or not. Like it's, or like, you know, it can almost sound like, but I think that really is the task to like listen and to know when to intervene, but for sure it can definitely seem, uh, I could see why it would, it could seem like a grift. I will say, um, on the, like, I don't know. I wouldn't say that I'm a psychoanalysis cynic, 
but I have been somewhat persuaded by, so my stepdad's a psychiatrist and he, he, and I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but he's a psychiatrist and he started off training to be a Freudian analyst and he was in analysis, but he felt, uh, I don't know if he would say that it was like, he thought it was a grift, but he, what he, what he didn't like about it was he felt like the method was getting in the way of the humanity of it, which maybe is the point, right, of, of analysis, right? You're supposed to dehumanize in the sense, right, like that, all the stuff we were just talking about. Um, but he was persuaded by reading um, a lot of the research. There was like a, a pretty famous, I think, research paper in psych- psychiatry or maybe it was psychology about how the most successful um, therapists of every stripe were the ones where the people who had self-reported the best outcomes of their therapy. And this this was like a bunch of different types of therapists with all kinds of methods, right? Whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy, whether it's Lacanian analysis, whether it's, you know, humanists, whatever it is. And you just said that, like, you know, there wasn't really like that good evidence to say that one had better outcomes than the other. But what they did find was that the patients who said that they who had the best self-reported outcomes had therapists who they felt like heard them and were listening to them and they felt like some kind of like rapport like they felt like they were being heard um didn't matter if they're freudians didn't matter if they were like you know cognitive behavioral therapists so he was kind of persuaded that you know the method doesn't really matter (laughs) uh it's kind of like the approach that you take and he himself adopts kind of like a grab bag of different methods that kind of like make sense to him and i and i and i will say that it seems intuitive to me that psychoanalysts are maybe at greatest risk maybe this is wrong but at a certain risk of almost fetishizing their method where they're just like they where they follow it like procedurally and and like don't really pay the attention it's like they're paying more attention to the method than they are the person that's there with them um and so i don't know i mean again this is coming from someone who's never studied psychology or like practiced it but that seems right to me well, one charge that's sometimes levied against Lacan is that a larger proportion of his uh, analyzants committed suicide. <laughs> and I, there is a, also a pushback to that, which is to say, uh, or his supporters say, that uh, he also took on the most difficult, hopeless, quote, quote unquote, cases. Right. That you know, that would that would probably be the outcome anyway. So I don't know. There is a debate about that, about whether he was in whether he was ethical or whether the method itself is ethical. But can you imagine, I can't imagine what I would do if I heard my analyst in the back of the room, like counting the money that I gave him (laughs) just being like, dude. Yeah. There's a part, there's a part in the film too. I deserve love. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and I think I, I often thought to myself that I wonder if like, I I've always wanted to be an analysis um, just because I think it would be interesting, um, but I think Why you know, I, you? I, I feel like there are probably a lot of people who are like really suffering a lot, and it does strike me that like psychoanalysis would be really hard for those people. I think because it's just like I think it's like extremely challenging because it does force you to confront yourself, and I think the problem is so many people who go into therapy like are have such a hard time doing that already. And then you go to this method that like forces you to do this and like doesn't hold your hand at all. Like it doesn't surprise me that it just wouldn't work for those kinds of people, I guess. Like, I feel like you have to already have some kind of like a stronger constitution in yourself 
to be able to handle what it asks of you. Well, there's always a reason. Like if you go, are in analysis, there's a reason for that. I yeah. mean, unless you got committed or something. So sure. you know, I guess, even to show up there, you know that something's wrong and believe that it can be fixed. Now, it's usually not the thing that you think is wrong going in there. For example, in this film, she goes in because she's having marital problems and comes out and it's a different problem. I won't I won't spoil the yeah. ending, but it's it's something else that she had to realize about herself. But what I really also liked about this film as opposed to I don't know, marriage counseling is there's a definite endpoint in analysis. Like now you're finished. Um and that's that, that doesn't mean that you you are ever like truly finished in terms of uh growing as a person and all that, but if there's one thing that is the the tra the trauma point or the hinge point that you keep cycling or the repetition that we speak about with reference to Lacan. If you keep repeating that one event, then there is a definite point at, at which you realize and cease the repetition, which is the goal. And there might be, if you if you have multiple traumas, you might have to do multiple, multiple routes through that repetition. But I thought that was, it was a good point to end on because the analyzand realizes that she got what she needed from it, not that he decided that it was over. Yeah, Although what's he, that? Yeah. Didn't he kind of decide, though? Didn't he kind of decide at one point in the film where he's just like, you got what you needed? Like, you figured it out. He said that in voiceover, actually. I oh, he, okay. He didn't, right. he didn't. He's like, mm. she's done. But he didn't let her finish until she realized she was done. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're totally right. I should have yeah, been paying like, better attention. Yeah, it's like he, he noticed the breakthrough happened, but it hadn't quite sunk in yet. So it's like, okay, it has to continue. Can't stop too early because then maybe it will regress. But I was going to ask about that, that, that repetition because I got the sense, you know, I've, I've read some Guattari too, and he kind of emphasizes this aspect of psychoanalysis is it helps you get past blockages, right? When you, you get blocked up, you get stuck, I'm guessing as a result of some kind of trauma, and you constantly just repeat that trauma. You repeat that trauma over and over again, and you can't move past it, and it stops you from moving forward in your life. It stops you from, in some cases, you know, being able to become a mother, right? Releasing some kind of tension that's affecting you that you had between you and your father that is continuing to be repeated. I get this sense also of, of war trauma, right? A lot of psychoanalytic theory has drawn from returning soldiers and they find that they tend to live their traumatic experiences over and over and over again, that kind of repetition compulsion. So there's a certain sense that psychoanalysis is about helping you get past these blockages and allow you to, I mean, I like these lines about allowing you to uh, take control of your past rather than become a victim of it, allowing you to to sh to to write your own story rather than kind of being a slave to history which is when you're trying to repress it because the repressed always returns the ancestors never you know stay dead they always come back <laughs> yeah that's, that's that's what psychoanalysis seems to be about in a very broad sense yeah that says that does that was a good moment um when he says something about how because she's sort of the, the analyzant, she's resisting like a certain or at least she's questioning, like, why is there like this obsession with going back and like, look, look, examining these things. And I think he says something like, um, you know, those who aren't 
aware of the past are going to reenact it all the time. Although I wonder, you know, do, do you think there's something, this is something I've often thought about, like psychoanalysis, or it's like a critique I've wondered about, which is like, is it, does it have, like, is it too rationalistic in this sense, in the sense that it's like, okay, if you just have like knowledge of something, somehow it won't bother you anymore, right? It's like, so it like, it almost like, it almost overly cognizes trauma or cognizes psychological disturbances by being like, well, all you need to know is be aware of it. And then somehow that's going to like make you better. I don't know. I, I have an answer to that though, because I, I realized kind of the repetition that I was doing through analysis. I realized the repetition I was doing and I still do it. Right. right. It's not right. like, it's not like I've, I'm suddenly a better person. Right. But the difference is subjectively, then you're not, you don't feel trapped by it. At least when you screw up the next time, you can say, look, here's, I know why this happened. So you have a story to go with it. Um, whereas yeah. before, whereas but I you, guess- Then you're accountable for it. And then you can like, then then if you, like if you fuck up your relationship with somebody, then you can apologize to them for it, having known what was your responsibility there. Well, I guess because in the whereas, past, you would have maybe, or someone, not necessarily you, would have just had all kinds of like rationalizations and defense mechanisms and wouldn't have been able to see the core of it. It would have been repetition without knowledge, whereas now it would be repetition plus knowledge. So I don't think it's, it doesn't solve your behavior, but it solves the the repetition, which is the unconsciousness of your behavior. Yeah, there's right a enough. certain there's a certain way in which it's a symbolic resolution of a real conflict. And in psychoanalysis, the real conflict is always, you know, inherent in the constitution of any subject. There's a kind of real at the core of it, which is a kind of fracture or a split, the split subject, which I guess I guess the have the non-knowledge of that or the attempts at, at repression or cheap solutions is is going to manifest as repetition compulsions, which manifest in you know in your language and your speech and your symbolic life, <laughs> your social life in a certain sense. I think this is also a big concept in like Claude Levi Strauss and Friedrich Jameson, the ideas of of symbolic resolution to real conflicts. And I guess I, psychoanalysis seems to take on a version of that as well with its focus on language and symbols and signs. One thing, I, I don't think this is a spoiler and you can let me know and I'll cut it out if it is. Um, but the very end of the film, the final question that Lacan wants her to answer, because we've kind of given her fictional biography mm -hmm. a little bit. She comes from Brazil and goes to Paris and she thinks that she wants to go study with Lacan because he's this man of renown and a very famous analyst. But the thing that he gets her to admit that he suspected all along is that she wanted to do psychoanalysis not in her mother tongue, which would be Brazilian Portuguese. But she wanted, she wanted to do it in French mm. and she kind of realizes that that's a defense mechanism, which is her final realization that re makes her realize Okay, I can go home now because she was defending herself against the trauma of her mother tongue and her ancestry yeah. and a, a bunch of other parts of the film that we're not going to uh, spoil for you. But that's yeah. in, I love that language bit. That language was ultimately the problem because that is Lacan. Exactly. Language is ultimately the problem. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a good part without without spoiling it. There, There's a good scene where 
um, she she reports having hallucinations. And the things she's having hallucinations on, she comes to discover like there's a word um, that like is standing in for something else in her life. And like that's a very like Lacanian moment in the film. And I thought that was depicted pretty well. The displacement displacement in the symbolic and in the words, not the not 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 what they mean. Exactly. it, It would be much more Freudian to be like, okay, what is this? What does this hallucination represent rather than, oh, it's actually just a word. Exactly. It's about the language part of it. And I think that that the the, the whole part about um, the mother tongue is interesting because I think there's also a scene in the movie where Lacan suggests he's like, because er, pretty early in the film, I think she expresses the, the, the female character. She expresses frustration with like not being understood in France. The film is in English, but it's supposed to be like in France, obviously. And then um, and then he kind of suggests, well, I can get you like a Portuguese uh, analyst, right? And 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 then she's like very hostile. Yeah. She she threatens to yeah. she threatens to leave analysis basically, and and she has a rationalization for it, right? Which is, well, I'm Brazilian. These are Portuguese, so it's going to be different. It's not even going to be the same. Like, what's the point? I came here, so it's it's funny. And then of course at the end of the film, you realize, and these are light spoilers, but like whatever. I think it actually, I don't think it matters. Light spoil, but it's also this uh, the the center of Lacan that everybody knows is. The unconscious is structured like a language. So it's not just, whereas Freudian psychoanalysis, and I might be wrong about this, but Freudian psychoanalysis, it seems to me, is like, okay, what does a wolf represent? What does a rat represent? These different these different um, analyzands that Freud had, it's like we, we need to get to the meaning of the image. Whereas in Lacan, the meaning is in like the mo- phoneme. That's what yeah. I mean. It's in just the phoneme that represents something else unconsciously because your unconscious is much more attuned to these minor differences in language that we forget, but you remember it as a kid. And like I said, I'm on vacation now. So I got like nephews who are learning how to talk and their slips of of these phonemes are really interesting to me. Not that I'm psychoanalyzing them, but their little (laughs) slips of phoneme are interesting to me because we forgot that we learned that. Yeah. This is one of one of the pillsisms that I always repeat. You <laughs> forgot how difficult it was to learn it. It took you it took you years of practicing every single day. And anything that we do for years of practicing every single day, we're going to forget how difficult it was at the beginning. But in this film at least it has a great example and probably the original source material as well of how like that's not natural in in that sense. It's not it's not easy and you build up these associations where you can slip from one word into another and that's where language stumbles over itself because your unconscious is structured like a language. Yeah, that's something I really liked about this film is that Sariema's sort of, her being Brazilian and her focus, the focus on her language and her culture is in a way convenient at foregrounding what you just said pills because in Lacanian the Lacanian unconscious foregrounds the unconscious as being structured like a language much more so than it does um, the unconscious the Freudian unconscious being a kind of a repository of instinctive drives and even you know he 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 kind of opens up one of his articles or he, he says this in one of his articles you know the psychoanalytic experience discovers in the unconscious the whole structure of language 
And that's language in the sense that Saussure, Ferdinand de Saussure, would use the term language existing as an entire total structure, which as you learn and, and incorporate language, you become like a kind of microcosm of long. And so, you know, he says, I've alerted informed minds, which means his expert audiences, I guess, to the extent to which the notion that the unconscious is merely the seed of the instincts will have to be rethought. So it's not it's not instinctive, but it's that that foregrounding that language element. And in a sense, her situation was convenient for foregrounding that aspect of Lacanian psychoanalysis. Because if he was just performing psychoanalysis on another French person, right, you wouldn't necessarily have, it would, I think just maybe filmically and directorially, it would be a little harder to foreground the importance of language in, in Lacanian psychoanalysis. But the, I, th I thought that was a really good solution to bringing that out because like I said, you know, Lacan really incorporates, you know, Saussure and modern linguistics into his methods. Right. As compared to Jung, because Jung's like library of archetypes is purely imaginary and he almost gives no, no credence to language except as a vehicle to convey the imaginary. Whereas Lang or like you said, the Saussure-Lacan French tradition is very focused on the language itself. Not not what it represents, but as what it does as a machine, as a function. Yeah. So like, you know, Freud's mechanisms of the unconscious, the, the way that the unconscious works for Freud is through condensation and displacement, right? Where a symbol can acquire a kind of cathectic or, you know, emotional investment. And then displacement is the second mechanism, which then takes that condensed energy and switches it for a different symbol. So you have this kind of looping condensation, displacement, condensation, displacement. And in linguistic terms, that's metaphor and metonymy. Metaphor, metaphor is condensation, metonymy is displacement. And, it, and then that links into the Saussurian sign of the signifier and the signified and the relationship between those two and the ultimate sort of importance of the signifier over the signified. Because that's how, you know, the unconscious works. The unconscious is structured like a language. Let's take on linguistics and look at metaphor and metonymy and see how metaphors and dreams and metonyms. I mean, metonyms are, you know, using a part to represent a whole kind of thing and metaphors replacing one whole with another sort of thing, right? I think I'd like to bring bring back some of this structural analysis of language to the uh to the public discourse these days, because everyone's extremely obsessed with the way words are used, what <laughs> words represent, and yeah. not really what words are anymore. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Do you have an example in mind? I mean, you're right. No, I don't. Not today. <laughs> <laughs> not today. But yeah, I mean, I've yeah, that's that's good. Well, you know the. The interesting part about the return to German idealism from a psychoanalytic perspective is that you have to read the language stuff back into German idealism because it, it's really not a central element until maybe you get to Hegel, maybe not even Hegel, maybe the romantics make a much bigger deal of language. And, you know, by the time you're at Lacan, language, linguistics, and the Saussurian understanding 
of language is is crucial. It's been deeply incorporated into the psychoanalytic method. Yeah, no, I think so. And I mean, earlier, because I, I was kind of mentioning that some critiques are you can get too caught up in the method. But I think that's probably true of other things, too. Like cognitive behavioral therapy is like a very specific method as well. I don't know. I just don't know enough, I guess. But it, that's, I'm just kind of just like giving secondhand earlier, like what my psychiatrist stepdad has said in the past. He's not particularly a fan of cognitive behavioral therapy either. Hey, oh, one of the. Yeah, you know, one of the big stereotypes about psychoanalysis is that she, the the ego, the damaged ego of the patient is supposed to be replaced by the perfect ego of the analyst, <laughs> which I I think Lacan actually mentions that that is actually kind of how the American ego psychologists treat it in some ways, and that it's a very flawed method because the analyst is no is also imperfect. <laughs> That's what yeah. you were saying earlier about like we go in. Expecting answers because this is the subject supposed to know, <laughs> yeah. and we want answers. Why? And I think Seriemo brings this up a little bit. It's like always more questions and never answers from yeah. you. Just more questions. It's almost it's almost as if you're more interested in what I'm not saying than what I am saying. And he just goes, "That's true." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> session over yeah. it's like whoa yeah. and then he stops yeah he stops it at that moment too like the, the the whole variable length sessions right she asked that question he's like you're right and then he stops it right because he wants her to sit with that thought right yeah, yeah. She's like, why, why are you getting up this brought up a question that i really want to ask the director and it's I, I don't know that i don't like it it just seemed very uh puzzling to me is that lacan well, both of them have their voiceover. So they're, they're, they're speaking, right? They're speaking to each other. And one thing that a film can do that like a, a play can't, unless you have maybe a soliloquy or something like that. Pre-recorded or pre-recorded, yeah. But they use voiceover to tell us what Lacan is thinking while he's analyzing. And I think at, maybe at one point early on, I, I, I might be wrong about this, but I think she gets a voiceover as well for a little bit. Yeah. And I was wondering what you guys thought, because this to me, in a way, really disrupted the psychoanalytic experience of the movie, which is just, you know, psychoanalysis sessions. But to hear what he's thinking, I think it's really good for like a viewer's perspective, especially if you don't know what psychoanalysis is all about, is like, oh, this is the end goal that he's trying to uh, get to. But there's an attempt using these voiceovers to subjectivize Lacan as well, which is exactly the opposite intention of, of the psychoanalytic session. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about, you know, like, is this a choice for the viewers? I think that's obvious. But is it, did it change your experience of watching this, the puzzle of her uh, repetition unfold? Or did it distract from that maybe? Yeah, you know, I think that is probably the one place where I had mixed feelings about the film. Um, so I, on the one hand, I thought it was interesting and useful, especially there was like a couple moments, I'm trying to remember exactly what happened, where the voiceover to like what he's thinking and then to what she's thinking. And it's what's interesting about it is just like how different it is, how like they're how they're thinking totally past each other, kind of like how she's not picking up on what he's trying to do. And like, I think that what's good and useful about that is um, it's kind of like gives you an insight into like the difficulty of being an analyst or like what the analyst is trying to do. 
and how like the the analyst's end can have a hard time picking up on that. But on the other hand, I think like from like a narrative perspective, I think what 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 felt a little bit uneven to me about the film was that it seemed like it both was focusing much more on Seriema. But then there were like parts where, as you were saying, Pills, like subjectivizing Lacan. And because there are those scenes where he's on the phone talking to his doctor, right? Because like there's there's kind of like a subplot of how like Lacan himself is sick at the time, which he was. I think he died shortly after um, when the movie was taking place in the late 70s. And that part felt a little bit underdeveloped. Like it felt like the film wanted to give you some insight into who Lacan the person was and like what kind of struggles he was going through. And maybe that fits into like including the voiceovers of of Lacan himself. But in general, it felt much less developed, underdeveloped compared to like what we get in, about into like Sariema, if that makes sense. Right. I think I would agree with that and say either fully humanize him and show that he's like worried about his lunch and worried about his kid and yeah. he's just a normal guy. But then he comes into the session and is no longer a normal guy because he has to function yeah. as the analyst there or keep them entirely separate or just leave the subjectivizing of him out and keep him as this guru mystical figure. But I understand certainly why it was done. Cause if you don't, yeah, if you're, if you're not familiar with his writings and all this background stuff, then it becomes unclear why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah, That's the thing. And maybe it would be yeah. more interesting to be unclear with what he's doing because the end result would be the same. Right. But I don't know. I thought, it's hard. It's, I, I don't know. I, I can't say whether or not I would have made it or not made it, but it was the one part that I thought stuck out to me as I, I don't even want to say it was wrong. I, I don't want to say it was right. I was it was pu- it was puzzling. I think it added a a, a knot into yeah. the relationship that I wasn't expecting. I, I, I agree. Yeah, I have a very similar take. I have a, a bit of a half baked take on this about the, the the Lacan voiceovers and what that gives us in the film, which I agree, I kind of wanted more. But in another sense, I thought that those were just kind of delicate notes that were put in there that if we did get more, it might have ruined a bit of the... It would have ruined a little bit of the immersion in the main story. But what I really liked about it was it established... This is my take, anyway. It, it seemed to establish parallels between... Lacan and the patient, right? Because Lacan is portrayed as refusing to get some kind of operation, right? That is supposedly he's he is unable to face his own death and he's supposed to get some kind of operation done, but he doesn't want to live a life of pain. I don't know if I'm ruining too much going through all this, but this establishes a perfect parallel between Seriema, who is for various reasons using therapy in France and French to avoid the real problems and, 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 and something about, you know, not getting an operation after the first miscarriage and that sort of thing came up. And this seemed to draw a direct parallel to Lacan, who's thinking about his own daughter and how she will be left without a father in the same way that Seriema kind of was, right? And he obviously doesn't want to leave his daughter with the same sort of emotional baggage that Seriema has to deal with. But he doesn't want to live a life of pain. He and he, but he's. This is creating another thing that you would need psychoanalysis for. He's unable to face his own death. Why? There's probably some other issue that he can't really get to on his own that is going on there. But it seemed not only to establish the kind of 
imperfectness of the analysis, but also it added this nice like sort of narrative kind of or thematic parallel to Seriema's own situation, which was that she was, you know, she's going to therapy, but there is a deep current of like avoidance driving the whole entire thing, this repression that he's got to ferret out and say, why are you doing this? Why are you avoiding talking about the real issues kind of thing? And, you know, you can see Lacan almost in the grips in his very old age, right? This is like the last, this took place from 1974 to 1977, which was less than 10 years before Lacan's real historical death. And so that's, that's what I thought, again, Another aspect that the Lacanian, the Lacan voiceovers added anyway. Just to build on that, there is a difference. Um, kind of what I said earlier about repetition plus knowledge is different. Because she she didn't know why she refused treatment. But he did. And he said, I know this is what's expected of me. I know that the doctor wants me to do this and my daughter wants me to do this and everyone wants me to not be sick anymore. But I want to be sick. I, I don't know if that I don't know if you'd call that the same kind of refusal, but he's not being, um, or he has I, he, I guess he has knowledge of the repetition that he's performing there, saying I'd I'd rather be dead. And it's in a way like the specter of a life in pain is preventing him from taking the chance at living a longer, healthy life. <laughs> Maybe the operation would go fine. Doesn't matter. It's his kind of fantasy of of living in pain that is now again blocking him up. <laughs> And so Lacan probably himself needs psychoanalysis after this, <laughs> if, <laughs> if they ever do a uh, if they ever do a sequel, which which would not make sense. Good, this is a self-contained <laughs> film. <laughs> that yeah. part has to be fictional. So I I wonder maybe we should ask the director what what the purpose behind that was, or if we already got it. <clears throat> yeah, uh, like the, I the said, purpose, like the take. The purpose of what? Yeah, I mean, I think like you're talking about what Eric was just saying, which I, I agree that that does seem like plausibly the intent of what he was up to. I think, you know, and this comes from someone who like doesn't fucking know like much about cinema. <laughs> um, but I guess it, 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 it struck me that like that if that was the attempt, maybe it wasn't 100 percent successful. Um, but I also think that it would be it's like where we said at the beginning, like this is such a monumental task to make a film about Lacan that can actually capture some of the theory and practice in like a compelling way, which I think for the most part was actually quite successful. Um, and then these like little things kind of like, it's just hard to know how the film would have come across if it tried to like develop that more. It might not like, I'm trying to imagine how it could have been done as a non-filmmaker again. And, and I just don't know. And it might just be like audience service too, which would, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Almost all of our films are pure audience service, and this one's clearly not. There's, I don't know if, if we, I don't know how much longer we want to go, but there's another, there's one last little kind of thread that I, I don't know if, if we can untangle it. It's the, it was the gender thing that ran through it, right? Did you notice after the second meeting, he holds up a newspaper and he's reading from this newspaper and funny enough, the part the newspaper faces the camera and says, and it says in like big French headline, oh, yeah. Mao dead at 82 years old. <laughs> it wasn't mentioned, just interesting, funny. And There's a lot of I, Easter eggs like that. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, little historical references. and But then on the other side of the paper, which he was looking at, Lacan was reading, it, it said, heart has a gender. It was something about the heart having a gender and the difference, and he's kind of like musing to himself, oh, even, even the heart has sex, has a <laughs> sex, right? And and there's this sort of, the strand of, of a kind of, um, you know, her desire to remain sexless and her body betraying her really played into obviously the issues with the father the father wants all the affection for himself and leaves her unable to choose a substitute i don't know if that's the right way to put it um but running even underneath that is her desire to be sexless she was brought up almost in a boyish way right (laughs) like she's trained to be competitive she was encouraged to do judo and compete for grants even her even her professional life is 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 run over by this competitiveness and she's she's there on a grant she, the money she's using to pay him is some grant she's obtained to go to paris and live there for 6 years or whatever it was and get psychoanalysis uh but that gender thing is weird cuz then it it kind of comes up again later in the film as well but that initial moment where it comes up with the heart having a gender and this sort of, you know, your biological sex betrays your fantasies in a certain way. I don't know if that's codified into psychoanalysis. That- <laughs> it is. And I, this is something I'm going to be very careful about choosing my words over. But it's an Easter egg again to one of the last things that Lacan wrote was... Uh, I think it's in uh, one of the seminars. It's called Sexuation and Difference. And he got, uh, you know, what we would call canceled by a lot of feminists for writing this. But he says in there, and it's very much misinterpreted. I have to let our audience know that. It's misinterpreted. But he says there is no female subject. The, the, The subject has a masculine signifier and the female represents the lack of that. Now, immediately, you have to understand this has nothing to do with biology. The film's mixing it in, so maybe we can untangle it a little bit. But it has only to do with signifiers. So he's not saying anything about genders and body parts, but I think what this film is bringing in there is the reference to that part. And if the the author of this book is a psychoanalyst, the Brazilian lady. Can you write uh, her name? Betty Milan was the real one. Yeah. And, so and I, ca- I wonder, yeah. it seems to me like that must have some uh, reference in the source material that was not fully dealt with in the film. But I think it's probably uh, Lacan's sexuation and difference that's being referenced elliptically there. Yeah. Like I, I remember reading in the mirror stage that he compares, you know, a, a child looking in the mirror and recognizing themselves in the mirror, the, he compares that, which is a much sort of more cognitively developed version of like a pigeon, right? <laughs> How a pigeon develops, right? Like a like the female gonads of a pigeon doesn't develop until it sees another one of its species, right? And there's a sort of parallel there between a child spotting itself in a mirror. Obviously, animals can't really recognize their images in mirrors, I mean, we think some dogs do, you know, when you, when your poodle gets a haircut, it's depressed and sitting in front of the mirror. Okay. Maybe it's, maybe it's that, but 
in in the sort of psychoanalytic story of development that moment of 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 identification of the child who has this wobbly unsupportable body with this sort of nice upright image in the mirror and then that becomes the imago and thus the sort of imaginary and the symbolic split is then sort of primordially established there i'm probably getting that explanation wrong but there is again sexuation is activated by sociality in a certain way seeing the form or gestalt of your own image outside you and then identifying with it animals do this too right like you know there's certain stories about you know certain phases of bird development don't start until the 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 mother is cooing on while sitting on the eggs or something like that then that starts some kind of biological process i mean like i even all this is just to say you know the biological sexuation has always kind of played a part and lacan does seem to pay attention to you know you know what what would you call it? anatomy and neurology and sort of mainstream medical research as well this is uh we're comparing early and late lacan here like i said sexuation and difference is one of the last things that he wrote but when he says the woman does not exist which i think he says straight up it has nothing to do with the the bio, the biological category of woman it's about sexuation being real not something that's uh imaginary he likes to say a lot of edgy things that sound crazy he also says there is no sexual relationship which is yeah also... the, the phallus and the lack are the two yeah. modes right there's the penis and penis envy in its more unfortunate characterization right which is you know there again if i'm i'm reading about metaphors and metonymy i'm like okay what is this metaphor of the phallus displacing what's the metonym the signifier what's the whole then and there's a certain kind of there's a certain kind of metaphorical clothing going on that's being interpreted literally but i don't i don't know i'm not going to defend it cuz i don't know enough about it yeah if we want to be really edgy about it we can't end an episode with it we probably have to do a full episode on it to make sure that no one's gets their foot in their mouth or their but, phallus in their mouth. <laughs> but one thing that she was complaining about this at one point, right? Like everything, you know, in, in Portuguese, you know, the sea is a masculine noun. In France, it's a feminine noun. The bank is masculine in Portuguese and and in Brazilian Portuguese. And in French, the bank is a feminine noun. Like, and, and she's just complaining about these 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 um, linguistic cultural differences that make her unable to be understood. And that then lead, that connects up with, you know, the other kind of gender stuff going on in the, in here as well. And I, I just thought, I mean, I didn't say we would untangle this thread, but it's, it's definitely like there quite a bit and her desire almost not to become a woman and then the marital issues that result therefrom that psychoanalysis brings her to face is yeah, deeply linked to culture, language, gender, sex, those issues. And one of her main things is to not be labeled, right? Not just with the gender. I don't want to give that away because it's like a, a key plot point, but not to be labeled as a Brazilian in France or not to be labeled by her dialect of Portuguese as opposed to Portugal's dialect 
of mm-hmm. Portuguese. She's very resistant to labels, which is resistance to the process of subjectification that, like you said, occurs beginning with the mirror stage. Yeah. In the beginning was the word, right? That's the that's Lacan's borrowing from Genesis. Saint John. But even in the even in the sort of the the story of Eve being derivative of Adam, of made of his ribs, right? We're all kind of primed towards this this gendered, sexualized language thing. So I don't I don't know how it how that's dealt with in the Lacanian literature, but in this film, it, it was an interesting tension that underlay her problems yeah i'm looking forward to talking to uh richard i think that'll be be the next step i think this is as good of a little bit of a review slash intro as we can give so uh with that why don't we end the first half of this and we will uh bring on richard to see what he says and maybe he's already been brought on depending on how this goes on the editing room floor but anyway (laughs) And I think it, and I think it was it was a good discussion of psychoanalysis too. I think that in our previous discussions of Lacan, we really talked a lot more about the theory. And I think we I think this was a good a good discussion of the actual method. So, because we were we were avoiding the real issues, of course. <laughs> uh, hopefully, our words were not opaque like things today. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We are not who we are. We already are who we are not wanting to be. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. And just remember, <laughs> desire is the desire of the other. Don't See you for phase two. <laughs> All right, we are now entering part two of two. And as you can probably hear by my voice, I'm actually using a real microphone this time. Um, We watched the film, enjoyed it, reviewed it, sort of. Um, We didn't get some stuff, and we have questions about other stuff, so who better to answer them than the writer and director of this film? 9.4 out of 10 on IMDb. So very spicy there. Um, Very nice, dude. Welcome to our humble podcast, Mr. Richard Leeds. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. So Richard, let me let me start off here with something uh, broad, something easy. You're a filmmaker, perhaps more in the auteur romantique lineage. But the first thing that struck me about this film, in fact, the first thing that shocked me about this film was that you made the very bold, some might say radical choice of releasing a film in 2022 without any CGI to speak of. Right. This is radical. So first question here. What's your take on the uh, the state of cinema and a reality that's more or less generated by an AI in Disney's basement? <laughs> you know, I think this film, Adieu Lacan, in many ways, and many levels, um, is conscious of limits. And it's not that I've, I'm dead set against a CGI, but most of the time it leaves me not very excited by what I'm seeing, not very stimulated. You know, it's, just, it's kind of uh, like an endless uh, pre-digested form of food. No, so this was very much, uh, as you know, it takes place mainly in, in the, uh, the consulting room of Lacan and then a little bit in his waiting room and uh, in black and white. 
the, there are a few uh, exterior scenes, uh, shots that are in color. But uh, working with, you know, within those extreme set of limits for this film uh, was you know, tremendously energizing uh, for the crew, for the cast. And, uh, you know, I think we were able to do things with these uh, set of limitations uh, that surprised me, you know, honestly. But I've been working, you know, I've been uh, interested in Lacan's work uh, going back over 20 years from when I did a piece of uh, performance art uh, based on the records of my uh, mother's brother uh, who had, had a psychotic break and, uh, uh, when, and was a veteran of the Second World War. And I was fascinated by how these records that were intended to tell a story about him also told a story about the storytellers about that time uh, after the Second World War, which was this pivotal moment in the rise of mental health care, basically because soldiers, the young men, were a non-stigmatized patient population, as they say. You know, I came with a stack of books and I said, ah, oh, you know, I'm reading all this stuff. And he said, well, you know, you really should meet people who do this work and you'll have a completely different feel about it. So I started to get to know uh, all these different clinical groups. Um, and the one that, you know, I formed a, a connection to that never left was uh, a Lacanian Psychoanalytic Association in New York made up mainly of uh, analysts from Latin America or people who wanted to be analysts tra in training. And, uh, you know, um, and it's always been fascinating to me, um, uh, you know, the mix of interest in the visual arts, in, in literature, in philosophy, uh, reading of Lacan and Freud. And uh, so, I stay, I've stayed with it. I've stayed interested. And uh, this opportunity came along. And uh, you know, I think uh, just the, all those years of experience really uh, made, you know, when you know, we shot this in 10 days, so it's like being on a... Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like being on... I mean, and I was sick as a dog. Uh, and uh, didn't know how I was you know, going to show up one more time at five in the morning to do this. But you know, so many things, even on a film of this limited size, so many things have to go right. But uh, you know, I'm very happy with what we were able to achieve. So you pretty much answered my next question, which is why Lacan? Lacan's obscure, except to grad students, and of the psychoanalysts, maybe controversial. If if you even know of him at all, but right. maybe I'll maybe I'll shift my question to um, what made you choose the source material, which is uh, Lacan's parrot. It was a right? play called. The main source was um, called uh, "Goodbye Doctor," a play by um, a Brazilian psychoanalyst who's become a friend, uh, Betty Milan, and uh, I was given an opportunity to. Uh, direct a stage reading for a group of uh, Lacanians. But I, I was so struck that the material was 
uh, both to a uh, audience of people who you know, spend their lives uh, returning to the work of Lacan uh, palatable or it had something to say. And at the same time, I thought, you know, this could, this is pretty accessible. You know, this is really for someone who knows nothing about Lacan, but, you know, hell, it's the story of a woman who's, uh, you know, wanted to have a child, has had two miscarriages, uh, separated from her husband, whom she loves, and uh, is feeling, uh, you know, just alone. Um, you know, you, a lot of people can relate to that on, on one level or another. Um, so it was, it was thinking, wow, this is both uh, something that could appeal to uh, a specialized audience that I have an affinity to over many, many years, and also a broader audience really made me um, kind of start to begin to think about making the plunge. Um, I made some changes that I'll mention right away. One is the play was called Goodbye Doctor, and there was, uh, Lacan was not mentioned. Uh, so, you know, calling it Adieu Lacan, I, I made it about Jacques Lacan. And the other thing was that in kind of, maybe because Betty had done her analysis with Lacan, she had changed the story so that the person who is uh, facing death is his is the uh, mother of the analyst, not the analyst himself. And I knew, in fact, that, of course, it had been Lacan who was uh, at that time uh, getting, you know, this, this uh, unwelcomed uh, news. And uh, so, so I changed that back and made that. Uh, those were two, I think, significant changes that really really drive uh the film forward great yeah i was wondering kind of an, another sort of background question about uh about yourself because you 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 were talking about kind of like doing performance art but also pursuing an academic career and then the filmmaking and i'm kind of curious like how those things came together was one sort of had priority over the other and did one did another one kind of come after or were they always sort of interests that sort of coexisted? <clears throat> i uh had been living uh, in France for uh, many years and doing like small jobs and you know, writing on art for art form for a while. And, you know, graduate school seemed like a way to uh, get back to the States. Um, and, you know, the interest that I had had um, in the, many years since I had been in school had continued in France. I had uh, friends who had introduced me to Derrida and I had started attending lectures by Derrida over the Colonel Superior. And then through um, a friend getting afflicted with AIDS and kind of starting to think about how this uh, theory could be used to really address Political, uh, political issues. I became more interested in in Foucault, and then so in a way that though you know it's always been a kind of 
difficult match, um, I think, you know, it's it, between an interest in making film and, and an interest in s- subjects that are usually approached in a, a academic setting. And then, you know, uh, my first film was about lobotomy, a woman that wants a lobotomy starring Michelle Williams. And my, the, the um, uh, research for my doctoral dissertation really became the basis for the screenplay. I had uh, walked out on the street and uh, uh, to meet a friend, and I'd said, well, I'm reading about lobotomy. This stuff is fucked up. <laughs> and he, say, he said, well, you know, my mother really wanted to get a lobotomy, and she finally succeeded. And I was like, what? And he <laughs> oh. said, no, no, yeah, you know, she really wanted a lobotomy. And, she, and then I realized there had been a, a small but not, uh, you know, a, a significant number of people who had read about lobotomy on the cover of the New York Times, um, you know, the inventor of the transorbital, uh, you know, which really uh, was at a good price point in those days. You know, the, <laughs> the, 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 bi, the bilateral, you needed a neurosurgeon uh, to diagnose it, a, a, a neurologist to diagnose it, a neurosurgeon to perform it. You needed an anesthesiologist. And... Uh, you know, whereas the uh, transorbital, uh, you didn't even need a medical degree. Uh, the first ones were really used, done with an ice pick and using uh, electroshock for anesthesia. So it brought down to the p- price point to a really nice place <laughs> where they could really turn these things out. And uh, so, it, you know, it, it, they, they sold like hotcakes for, for a short time. So in that way, I segued back. Uh, into filmmaking and uh, and and yet have always you know kind of kept uh, engaged with uh, the Lacanians you know again loving this kind of uh, of reading process that's involved uh, you know I, I I studied ancient Greek as a as a kid and uh, my first real attention to uh, Lacan was someone had asked me to write a version of the Antigone. And uh, that day I happened to read an obituary for Laurence Bataille, the, um, I guess, daughter-in-law of Jacques Lacan. And it mentioned in this obituary that uh, Lacan had brought to her when she was in prison for uh, protesting against a French I, you know, uh, involvement in Algeria, uh, he had brought to her his portion, I think, of his seventh seminar on the Antigone. So I took this as a sign, you know, right? Mm. I'm, in, I'm Antigone. So I went uh, and uh, it wasn't published. And I read the typescript. My French was non-existent, but I had, I knew the Greek. So I kind of, you know, worked through this. and. Um, uh, so that was where, uh, how I first started to read Lacan. And, you know, again, I've always loved these really torturously hard reading processes like Greek. Hmm. And so, you know, uh, and I've, and a few of them, you know, a few Lacanians are also, um, you know, really into jazz or, or, or also playwrights or also direct 
opera. You know, so there's a kind of eclectic group. I noticed that Sophocles made a very brief uh, cameo in your film as well. Yes, yes, yeah. There are a few. There are a few little cameos yeah, like, for, the, for the theory, the theory literate crowd. In, in oh the yeah, film. oh yeah. I mean, you know, like um, uh, Corey Diskin, the production designer, who I'm very did a great job. But I was very particular. You know, sometimes on a set, they're kind of like, "Hey, we we need some books here. Put some mm -hmm. books there." I'm like, "No, no, no, no." We're not just putting books there, you know. <laughs> we are going to be very careful about which books are there. And, you know, uh, so, yeah, all those choices were, um, uh, I mean, they're not, uh, yeah, they're not like a, a secret uh, <laughs> uh, you know, all, uh, reading, but, it, they, but they were very, you know, what Lacan was working on at that time. Uh, some of the influences, uh, some of my own passions in relation to uh, Lacan. But yeah, all of that was carefully uh, chosen. Yeah, there are some definite Easter eggs in there, both for the, the theory literate yeah. crowd and the those knowledgeable about France, um, some of the statues and the opening shots. And can we ask about one in particular? Because we were at, we were wondering about it. Why the Mao, the death of Mao newspaper? Oh yeah. Um, well, you know, it it came up as a possibility. I went, oh yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. Oh yeah. That's good. Yeah, let's That's use that. True. You know, it, it it introduces again death. You know, for one thing, um, there's a whole there's the theme of Lacan's death. You know, the sense of. I mean, I think it's what, you know, one of the things a lot of people say is, oh, he's so much more sympathetic than he comes across in the Rudinesco biography. And, um, you know, I, there are a number of reasons for that. I think, um, you know, my own connection is through uh, particularly my late friend, Alain Didier Vile, who uh, was analyzed by Lacan and as the editor uh, uh, of uh, Cartier Lacan, which is an interview with all these uh, people who were uh, analyzed by Lacan, and uh, I think had a have a, a warmer sense of um, of who Lacan was. You know, I think also you have the voiceovers, where you know, I think at one point he, he says "shit," you know, <laughs> you know which yeah. is you know that he's he's course correcting. You know, he you know he really is not. You know, he really doesn't know necessarily, you know, with all that for us, you know, he's not only, uh, yeah, maybe supposed to know, but, you know, he's kind of thinking on his feet. It's, he's very performative. I think, I think one of the things I found really interesting about it uh, was thinking about Lacan as a, or an analysis as a performative act in a way you know, references he makes in passing to circus or vaudeville, you know, the fact that his uh, Sylvie Bataille, of course, was a great, a great beauty, great actress. Mm -hmm. and, and the 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 presence of death, you know, his own mortality. So I think that was one reason. And, um, you know, Mao, I think Mao is also a figure, uh, a political figure, a figure of the communist tradition, 
uh, which really reflects that time period. Uh, certainly a lot of people around uh, Lacan were very interested uh, in Mao. Um, so uh, it had a lot of, a lot of uh, echoes to it. Yeah, yeah, I, I loved that um, sort of parallel struggle in a way. Some of the things that Lacan seemed to be going through in the film paralleled some of the things that Sariema was going through. Right. And it really sort of it humanizes him in a way, which yeah. is very nice because he's such a towering figure in theory and he seems like he's got all the answers, but it sort of humanizes him and brings him down to earth. And uh, I really I really enjoyed that. And then the Mao reference really for me, it just, yeah, it, like you're saying, it hooked in these contextual aspects. Like, I mean, the French Communist Party was huge right. and there are all kinds of divisions, you know, or are you a, are you a post-Marxist or a, or a Maoist or a Stalinist and all those sorts of divides that really emerged. So yes. it, it nicely like hooked that stuff in for me. And that's that's sort of what I thought. He was reading the other side. He's like, hmm, even the heart has a gender. And then the, you see Mao on the other side yeah. of the paper. It was really, it, it's just one of those things that your your imagination can then sort of fill in all these all these things in the film, and it's really great. Um, but one one thing I also wanted to ask about too is is um, just as background, the idea of filming it all in in this single room in this single space. And I, I did a little looking around and, and saw you mentioned you, you have some inspiration behind dealing with films as something shot sequentially in a single space, you know, over right. 10 days, as you said, um, was it um, Robert Altman is, it, is an inspiration for you for that? Yes. Well, for shooting in sequence, you know, uh, all, there are very few filmmakers who regularly have shot in a sequence. Uh, Antonioni is one, Robert Altman is another. I have done two films with uh, Elliot Gould, uh, who worked, uh, who was, you know, did a lot of really great work with Altman. Um, and working with Elliot, I kind of uh, picked up the ghost of, or, or was inspired by the ghost of Altman in some ways and began uh, in another really uh, low-budget uh, film done, shot very quickly, called uh, Fred Won't Move Out, began to, um, uh, which was my first experiment shooting in sequence. And you can really do things in terms of, you know, like playing a piece of music. You, 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 you can really feel the room and feel how things are going and, and therefore take chances with the camera. And I was, you know, also time was so important because of course the short sessions, which Sariema is revolting against, or not uh, short sessions, uh, variable length uh, sessions uh, um, where, uh, you know, Lacan, like the director is calling cut in a sense, um, were uh, made me very aware of the sense of time. And then of course, also, uh, that film and psychoanalysis have, in a way, the same birthday of 1895, um, or at least grow up at the end of the 19th century, that they're both 
they're both inventions. You know, I mean, uh, psychoanalysis is in many ways an invention, and and uh, and so is cinema. And I think one of the things that uh, uh, Lacan did was uh, in returning to Freud, he was also, um, you know, translating the inventive spirit of Freud, you know, uh, by Levi-Strauss and Saussure and Kojev in so many ways for all, for all that he emphasized the sense of return one of the things he was returning to was a sense of, of invention, uh, of a certain kind of being out on the edge of things in a way that was uh, not acceptable to what the dominant American form of psychoanalysis at, those, at that time, uh, when they dominated the IPA, they, they dominated uh, as they did many fields at that time. And, uh, you know, he was pushing back against that. Whereas, you know, uh, psychoanalysis in the United States was uh, highly medicalized at that time, run by the uh, American, Med American Medical Association. There was a real effort to uh, have, have it become a medical profession. And it was kind of like um, a... You know, it, it popped. It was incredibly uh, successful for a short time. So after the Second World War, but it's this really odd form, really odd form to this day, uh, called ego psychology. You know, I mean, it was everywhere. It was incredibly um, uh, present in, in, in popular culture. And then it just bombed. It had very reactionary ideas about what women should be doing in the society uh, about homosexuality. Uh, so uh, in being medicalized, uh, the nightmare that Freud had uh, uh, worried about in uh, uh, lay analysis and writing about lay analysis uh, that, you know, the, the, that, that physicians for the, not in all cases, but often their training is not Shakespeare, it's not Dante, it's not Goethe, you know, it's not uh, these things that were, were, were intrinsic to uh, Freud's formation. Um, and that, you know, Lacan, who's of course drawing on, whether it's the, the Antigone or, or, or uh, the Marquis de Sade is very much in touch with the American translation, uh, Strachey's translation kind of emphasized uh, a more medical approach and, and was really trying to institutionalize, whereas, you know, Lacan was, was pushing, you know, pushing the envelope in a certain way as he was addressing what was really, you know, things that were important in society and, and which uh, remain very important today. As part of your PhD, if I'm not mistaken, or your graduate work, at least, was you you were a volunteer or worked at an outpatient uh, facility for the severely mentally uh, ill. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could discuss some of those experiences, maybe how they how they influenced you, your views on on mental health, on psychology, and maybe how it influenced fil your filmmaking. Yeah, um, yeah, it really is a period in my life that uh, 
was a real catalyst. Um, I mean, you know, I often joke, well, my first film was about lobotomy. This one's about psychoanalysis. Come on. It's there, you know. Uh, but so clearly, um, uh, you know, these are interests that have stayed with me. Um, but I was uh, volunteering at an outpatient center for severely chronically mentally ill. And, you know, basically, um, if you're in a hospital, the state has to pay for you. If you're homeless, the federal government picks up much more. So this was part of the push for uh, transorbital and then basically for pharmaceuticals originally, starting with Thorazine, was to be able to transfer, starting with California under Reagan, to uh, transfer the the financial burden of of mental health care from from the states to the federal government. This was after, uh, you know, at the end of the Second World War, they built these huge hospitals. They thought they were going to just be able to put people in for short periods of time and then bring them out. And that model hadn't worked. So, so an outpatient center for severely chronically mentally ill is uh, a rarity and, uh, you know, it's really fortunate. Um, the people who were there were, you know, they, they, from a long shot, they weren't in any sense lucky, but given the possibilities of the um, uh, mental health care in the U.S., which is kind of a, you know, there's a narrative that gets repeated every 60 or 70 years, which is of a horror show. I mean, at the end of the Second World War, during the Second World War, there had been all these conscientious objectors. Uh, who were often sent to work in the psychiatric hospitals. And these were really smart, you know, uh, people connected. They were uh, Mennonites, for example. And so they, they saw this horror show and they carefully documented it. Um, you know, they took notes. And uh, so at the end of the Second World War, um, there's an expose in the New York Times, uh, excuse me, in Life magazine with these uh, brutal photos of the conditions in psychiatric hospitals. And, um, and so action is taken. It, but it's, you know, again, it's, it's also at a moment where the profession of psychiatry in the U.S. wanted to move out of the hospitals. They wanted to be like their colleagues who were you know, the new suburbs, and they wanted to be treating um, uh, this new uh, middle class. And uh, so it also served them. Um, and the model they took was from, you know, wartime in a sense, that, that soldiers had gotten better by being treated. This was what they said. And this gets reset after the Vietnam War, after the war in Iraq. It, it always gets rediscovered. It's an amazing act of forgetting and remembering that goes on. You know, that war, holy shit, we just discovered war. It's incredibly bad for them. <laughs> you know? And then they, you know, send out young people to one more time be brutalized in the war, and then they go, holy shit, this is really bad. <laughs> uh, and uh, so there was a brief moment after the Second World War where there was a real interest 
in mental health care, a real earnest interest. And it's the time when the National Institute of Mental Health is formed. Uh, the first Mental Health Act is right after the Second World War. Um, so there's this real engineered or, or moment of real uh, consensus around it. But so this place where I was volunteering, I was I had I was running groups when, where we were reading aloud uh, the short stories of Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Hawthorne, and Melville, um, which uh, the people in these groups loved it because, um, you know, usually in these groups, they would have to kind of reproduce their illness um, or, you know, it was there was a kind of closed circuit. But that, so there was a way in which um, like the voice was an instrument and they got to play this hmm. these amazing tunes. Um, so those were those were great. And then there was an out, there was a, a theater program, which at that time was where they would come up with their own plays. And the play, which I was involved with, they came up with, which was called Room 13A. And it was about a medicine, a pill, which could, which could cure all mental illness, but had one side effect. It brought back the dead. Hey, psychoanalysis. And I thought, oh my God, this is <laughs> uh -huh. psychoanalysis. You know, whatever. It was it was so fascinating. And uh so and that program around the time I was there was being shut down. And the theater, just to show you how these things, the theater program, which was so amazing, they changed it so um they made it, they said it's much more useful if of, of the clients, they were called clients. Uh, if the clients had work uh, where the theatrical uh, situations were like, they're behind a, a cash register at McDonald's or oh, they're checking someone's bags. Gross. Um, you know, something much more, you know, whereas what we were doing was much different than that. It really wasn't at all about adaptation to um, whatever you want to call it, neoliberal economy or, uh, you know, this, this kind of, but so that, you know, maybe in some ways for better, but in some ways for worse was, is symptomatic of the way in which uh, programs like that, which were being, I mean, the, the program was called continuous. <laughs> uh, that's the only word I remember, continuous. And as somebody said, that was the kiss of death. You know, to anyone like, you know, they're continuous. No, get rid of that program, you know. Uh, so. Oh, man. Yeah. Drugs and lobotomies. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember uh, learning that the, the inventor of the transorbital lobotomy won a Nobel Peace Prize, I think, in like the 50s. But of course, it was shocking because I had watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yeah. by then and, and sort of seen... I don't know if it was a transorbital, but the like sort of closing scenes is is just him as a vegetable kind of thing, and it's it's shocking from today's perspective, I guess, that that was considered a a treatment. Yeah, well, you know, it was you know, it's interesting was that the cri it was really about the criteria. You know, they would say uh, the uh, this this person this woman uh, complains about doing laundry. Um, she no longer complains about doing laundry. 
uh, or, you know, often people yeah. in institutional settings, you know, who were a pain in the ass. And then the next day they weren't a pain in the ass. And so, and that was, you know, that was the criteria for, for improvement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's this sort of weird middle ground between, you know, normalizing somebody, making them fit into the already sort of dominant uh, beliefs right. that you have to have to be a part of society. And then there's the sort of lobotomy or even just sort of the, the bedlam model, I guess, is just take yeah. them out, put them aside, out of sight, out of mind. And then you know, it's like psychoanalysis tries to adopt a middle ground almost. And I just love the idea, you know, this analysis is where you can start to forge a new path forward rather than being removed from society, rather than being normalized. Right. And it also, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily, the idea of cure, it's not, it's not really there. It's kind of, you know, more of, um, seeing symptoms outside of the model of trying to get back to normal. You know, it's more about, I love the moment when David Patrick Kelly, the actor who plays Lacan, very near the beginning, goes, you're in analysis. You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, anything is possible. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful moment where he seems like, you know, a little crazy. But, you yeah. know, it's kind of... <laughs> It's it's you know refreshing in a way that it's uh, um, you know it's about uh, this, these possibilities that come from uh, this process. So, um, well, I'm, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad go you ahead. brought. Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say I'm glad you brought it back to the film because we're about halfway done, and I want to make sure we get to pick your brain about that specifically. Yeah. Um, so I had one question in that. This this film depicts analysis, the process of analysis, you know, more or less realistically. Of course, there's cuts and all that, but more or less realistically, except for one choice you made oh. that breaks the depiction or disrupts the depiction, which is to give the viewer access to Lacan's thoughts via via voiceover. Oh, I, so I thought you were going to say the capoeira dance. Oh yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> but of course, that usually takes place. Usually not that early <laughs> in the analytical process, it, but there is, you know, usually the cop is, uh, yeah. no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I actually, I actually forgot about that scene. But anyway, I wanted to ask about the voiceover because Lacan yeah. occupies this position of the other for Sariema, but then the viewer gets not only access to Sariema's process, her right. working out, but also to Lacan's thought and in some cases, his strategy, like what he's trying to get out of her. So right. I was wondering what your thinking was behind the use by giving the audience right. that kind of transcendent point of view in that situation. Well, here again, I can um, I can uh, give credit to and blame uh, Betty Milan, uh, who in the stage version, uh, Goodbye Doctor, had these soliloquies where the characters were turned and you know the this is one of the places where um film is so great with voiceover which creates a, um a voice which has you know is kind of just floating it's not uh, situated in any way um 
And so, you know, I used the voiceover for these uh, these internal voices that Betty um, had created, and that I, you know, I think um, work well. There's one, you know, another thing about the structure of the film and what attracted to me me to it was um, the idea that Sariema is the question of childbirth. Um, I was thinking of of uh, Socrates and this uh, metaphor for analysis that uh, Lacan was very fond of, of myutics, that, um, you know, like Socrates says, I, you know, I have no idea, you know, I, all I can do is be a midwife and give birth uh, to um, what's inside you, you know, this truth. And um, so in a way, you know, Sariema has to uh, give birth to her own subjectivity uh, before she can give birth to a child. That her symptom, which is, as we find out, uh, involves childbirth and, and, and uh, fantasies around pregnancy. Uh, so there was this double level, you know, in a way. There was both uh, that as a narrative, and there was also that in terms of the analytical process uh, from uh, Lacan's perspective that also, you know, um, interested me because often these kinds of doubling things you know, are, are, are very resonant and, and give you a chance to do something that otherwise might just slip away. Yeah. yeah that, and um, Oh, go ahead. I... I was just uh, just digging a little more into the film um, when you when you noticed uh, or when you when you said that um, about Lacan's influences he was influenced by Saussure and Levi Strauss and and obviously that's one of Lacan's twists he puts on psychoanalysis is to bring semiotics into play and we know the importance of words and what is usually called the the signifier right. in Lacan and some of these words that are popping up. Um, because of the the language conflict between the Brazilian yes. Portuguese and the and the French of Lacan, um, it it really highlights in a way the importance of language in the psychoanalytic process. Yes, and and I I wanted to know your thoughts on that and and even how you chose these words even if that's not giving away too much like the first one I believe that pops up is is maktub right and meaning fate destiny or literally it is written some of these words and eventually obviously the name of the father kind of becomes another another point of another lightning rod for insight and um yeah how did you work these signifiers into the uh into the story I, what I can take credit for is um, doing the film in English, which was to add a third language. You know, she's uh, speaking in Brazilian Portuguese, or no, that's her first language. The analysis is taking place in uh, French, which for her is a second language. And then this is all represented in English, which is yet a third um, language. And of course, it's the one for for various reasons was the was the easiest for me. Uh, it's the one where I mean, I have done a few things in French. Uh, so again, that kind of highlighted uh, language in yet another way that you're kind of 
in a way between languages uh, rather than in any one language. Uh, you're, you're, um, and which has a very interesting effect. I mean, we all live, uh, we may not be aware of it necessarily, but you know, where we all live, I mean, English is not, uh, even the title. I mean, one of the things that drew me to the title, I do that cause, you know, I picked up a dictionary and I'm, I think Merriam-Webster and there was adieu. I mean, adieu is a word in, is an English, is considered an English word. It's, it's um, so this kind of betweenness of languages, um, even within, uh, uh, you know, what we sometimes can reflexively think of as monolithic, you know, English or French, or uh, in fact, and some languages are more like this, uh, are even more kind of, of uh, made, uh, are made up of different rocks, different, different crystals or different things within them, uh, was I think something that has a very subtle effect. Uh, I can't take credit, unfortunately, uh, for the choice. Uh, Betty is, her, is from uh, uh, Lebanon, Originally, it's it's her own story um, of her own analysis uh, with Lacan, uh, the play. What I took from the novel uh, was really just the introduction, that first speech where she says, uh, which I love, where she goes, look, one thing I'm not going to talk about because it's not relevant is immigration and being, mm -hmm. being an immigrant. I mean, it has <laughs> nothing to do. And of course... It's, you know, it's everything, it's everything. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, but I, that was the one, uh, uh, monologue or one speech in the beginning, which comes from the novel. The rest really, um, came from, from the play. And I, I brought it into, because it was such a key element and, uh, and the, and the kind of rejection of it was so striking. Good. I was wondering as well about, or going back to something that Pills was just saying about um, the the choice of the voiceover, and just generally, I think the film, you know, its its ability to de depict um, Lacanian psychoanalysis, you know, as you mentioned, the variable length sessions, yes, um, and all those different things. I'm wondering, um, were there certain aspects in the play or in the novel that, like, you either didn't end up including, or and just broadly, I guess, the challenge of trying to capture some of these. Um, like Lacanian idiosyncrasies to like the analytic process. Cause I know what pills was asking was about the voiceover. And when he was asking that question, I was sort of thinking, well, the voiceover makes it possible to see like the kind of work that Lacan as an analyst is actually doing, because a lot of it is just him saying, go on speak, you know, and it's like to, to someone who doesn't know much, it would seem like he's not doing much, but of course the goal is to try to get to subjectivize the unconscious, exactly. right. To get the conversation to happen between the analyst's end and their own unconscious and try to not yeah. subjectify Lacan, right? It's trying to get him out of that position. That requires a work that you probably can't see unless you're in Lacan's mind in a way. So that challenge, that was depicted well, I thought. Right. Yeah, so we're seeing on one hand the, the depiction of a subjectification the psych by, by one method, the psychoanalytic method. And then that is also, I don't think it's negligible, represented on a screen using Richard, your method, right. which is the a fi the film depiction. So 
you are subjectifying him as he is trying to subjectify her unconscious. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was it. Um, you know, I think the camera, uh, which we, you know, again, we drew up. I had looked at um, this TV series in treatment and I thought, wow, boy, do I not want to do that? Uh, <laughs> you know, because the camera was always leveled to the ground and it made sense for that because it was about two people. One person is a professional who knows certain things. The other person has uh, issues and they can, the professional can transmit to the other that professional knowledge. And that ain't what I was after. You know, what I, the model I found uh, was in uh, Carl Dreyer's Joan of Arc, which, you know, uses these extreme angles. It's about this woman who's being, you know, she's going to be burned at the stake. Um, and there's this whole sense of, you know, of powerlessness, of power, of knowledge, um, you know, of who has knowledge. Um, and, it, and it's actually um, very, it's very dynamic because at, as I looked back at Dreyer's film and I thought about how Joan Dark in some ways is helpless, but, you know, in the camera, but also she has all, she's with God. You know, I mean, so she's also, you know, screw them, you know, so she's and the camera. So it's not a simple matter of, oh, you choose a high angle to make her look helpless and then a low angle. It's much more of a dynamic and dramatic process. So, you know, we also went back and used and Valentina Caniglia, the cinematographer, whom I've worked with a few times and did such a great job on this film. We shot four, three, you know, this aspect ratio that goes back to the earliest uh, cinema and which is so great for the individual subject for one, you mm. know, for that pro portrait and black and white, you know, which again, uh, for this subject matter worked so well. And I think those kinds of angles um, and being very economical about choices we made there's one overhead shot oh you know? oh richard 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 i have to fanboy here a second because that is one yeah of there's two great shots in the film and that is one of them my favorite one because well so, for the listeners here this is an auditory medium and i'm trying to describe a visual depiction but you'll see where yeah, i'm going yeah. um the screen is looking down on the office from above and on the bottom half of the split there is the two chairs that are facing each other where they look at each other and speak. And at the top half of the split is the, the couch where she lays down and ultimately he sits behind her. And this split screen is separated by a white bar that they both cross. They cross from the chairs facing each other over to the couch. And you know, the real Lacan heads out there, you'll know what I'm saying. The split, the bar, halfway through analysis. Yeah. So this is a conquering of the physical space that is crossing the split in the yeah, subject. She's like, yeah, conquered they conquer, the couch. <laughs> they conquer her subjectivity yes. in this split screen scene. Mm -hmm. Great job, great yeah. work. Yes, and, they, and, yeah. and there's the mention of sex just before that, the sex of words, 
you know, that uh, like uh, with French and Portuguese having uh, words, you know, each word having its sex and the question of sex. And then, you know, I was thinking of the barred subject and this, the, these, that line there that it creates this cut. So they're uh, penetrating this, the couch, not just conquering <laughs> it. Bill, we'll, we'll let you go. We'll let you go on with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really more. loved the, um, the angles as well. You know, because, I claim um, what we see in this scene is <laughs> oh, Lacan fucking the screen. <laughs> yes. oh, there's there's right. our obligatory Zizek reference. Uh, yeah. yeah, the the way you use that, because it's such a small space, but it always felt like there was just more coming out of it by the angles, but also the focus on the objects in the room. There's there's effigies, there's the books, there's the sort of little, I don't know if you call them partial objects or things she fixates on every right. now and then. And the Borbian knot, let's not forget. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, he holds up this like sort of, it just looks like he's untangling wires or something almost, but it's, it. but then for a second, it's like, oh my God, that's the Borbian knot. That's the real imaginary symbolic yeah. interlinkage there. And uh, David Patrick Kelly uh, and I, it turned out by chance, we both had studied mime in Paris. <laughs> And we really bonded around that. But, and that object, I mean, he just, well, he loved playing, La he fell in love with Lacan, playing Lacan. Um, there was something about David Patrick Kelly, who's a really interesting, uh, you know, human being, actor, really classically trained, um, and for whom the work of the actor uh, is, you know, a, is a profound, uh, uh, thought process and, and role in society, um, you know, he found playing Lacan absolutely uh, mesmerizing. Um, and the more me and not was something uh, he was became uh, preoccupied with. And he chose the moment of, you know, of uh, it's the one moment where, you know, we have uh, Lacan's voiceover, but the one moment where he speaks to himself out loud is just in connection to the Borromean knot, you know, that, um, and he asks a question about why she's made one choice around money um, and not another. Um, and I thought it was just, you know, it was just spot on uh, and, and worked uh, in a way that... Um, very happy. Yeah, I don't know if this is just a connection I'm making in my head, um, but also the way you use the space. Um, and you brought up Dreyer, and I remember in, in another in an interview I saw you you also mentioned Paul Schrader and the transcendental yes. style, and he speaks about Dreyer to exemplify it yes. quite a bit. But also he's kind of in the end says maybe Brasson does it a bit better. But the the point is representing the holy other. Oh, there's a key term. Eric, could you quickly uh, let us know what the transcendental style is? Yeah, I mean, it's the transcendental style is is a method of, of I guess, creating tensions within the space of the film and eventually what you want to do is evoke a sense of the holy other, which I read, when I read Schrader, I read that as a religious thing. But then when I 
saw the film and about Lacan, I'm like, oh my, the holy other, right? Right. Yes. The, the unconscious and and the angles I thought and the ways you used the space really just sort of created those tensions. I know it wasn't like a gothic space; it was more of a, a human sized space, but it still evoked that transcendental kind of style for me. And maybe that's just because you mentioned it, and then I went back and watched the film again, and my mind has started no, putting we, those connections in there. Valentina and I had that very much in mind. And also, you know, Schrader talks about how most films try to grab you by the throat and never let go, you know, they're just this. And then he said, this is transcendental style. And I remember uh, he mentions this film by uh, Victoria De Sica, where there's this poor girl trying to light a match and she can't light it. And then she tries again and she can't light it. And she tries again and she can't light it. Just, you know, Hollywood, that cut, cut, that's gone. But, you know, that in this transcendental style, you, you hold on things and suddenly they have a meaning. You know, he says, well, it's either really boring and you're really bored or you start to lean in instead of, you know, instead of this thing that's constantly trying to overwhelm you with stimulation, you know, you start to, you you realize you have to lean in. You have to be involved with performance of what's going on. And of course, for, you know, for uh, people interested in analysis, and also I would say critical theory, they have by their very nature an affinity with that kind of, of process, you know, that, <clears throat> that the, the production in a way, um, a certain part of the production is taking place during the making of the film, but then a certain amount of the production is taking place in the reception of the film. Um, and so leaving room for that, you know, we were very, uh, conscious of like, uh, you know, we were going to risk being boring. You know, we were going to like, not push, not push this, uh, in terms of pacing and such to really kind of, of, uh, really be, uh, working in a particular in a particular way, and that's why also filming in sequence, you can really much more uh, uh, work on that edge, I think. Yeah, and I, I really loved the, um, I guess in my head, I read it almost as transposing those Gothic tensions that you get from Gothic architecture. You know, it's like, it's really big. There's a lot of downward pressure. You yes. need all kinds of apparatus to sort of diffuse that downward force or the whole thing will collapse and that seemed to me sort of transposed onto the i guess the chain of signifiers the um the sort of thinking that goes on in Sariema's head and then her engagements with Lacan like when she sort of first said like I'm from Lebanon but I don't want him to know that I want him to think I'm sort of a right. daughter of the founder of Brazil but then, and then it's like, oh, but is he going to think I'm Indian? I don't want him to think that. Then his first question, of course, is, or one of them anyways, yes. is, do you have Indian blood in you? And then she goes, oh, what the heck? <laughs> like those sorts of little, like, I want this, but I don't want that. And then something else happens. I don't want this, but I want that. And it, this, the tensions seem to be transposed onto the, you know, the chain of signifiers, the the, the narrative or the, the talking itself seem to capture those sorts of tensions that Schrader describes in Dreyer's 
style as well. And I, I, I really love that. And speaking of that top-down tension, I think she says at one point explicitly, I don't want the labels. I don't want to be labeled as nothing. Right. Which speaks mm. exactly to that downward tension that, you, that you're kind of referencing yes, there. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, she's, you know, uh, she's the protagonist. You know, I mean, she's the Anna, <clears throat> she's the Anna Lee Sand, right? I mean, she's the one, and that's what's I think also uh, great about uh, the film or the story. Uh, you know, is that in the end, she uh, in the final scene where she walks out and Lacan is in a much more. It's almost like he's uh, depleted. You know, he's he's. He's spent in a certain way. Um, he reaches out to, to get the money and she just leaves it on the table and walks out. But, um, you know, she's kind of, she pushes back. I mean, that was something very early on. That before we started shooting, uh, uh, Ishmania Mendez, the uh, actor, actress uh, who plays uh, the woman uh, who does the analysis, um, was asking me and spoke to Betty, you know, can I, you know, can I push back against him? And, you know, that's, a, that's one thing uh, where I think, you know, you're, you're translating somewhat into contemporary terms. I think Betty was surprised at how much uh, Ishmania uh, chose to, like, uh, give him hell or push back a little bit. But I think it's, you know, again, it, it translates well uh, in terms of um, uh, contemporary zeitgeist around uh, uh, gender and, and, and politics, but, it's, uh, but it, it, it does work very well. And uh, yeah, she really, um, you know, she is, it's, it's her voice, right? It's adieu Lacan. Is, is her. She's the one who says adieu that calm. This is maybe a much broader question, and it's okay if you don't feel equipped to answer it, but like sort of just the discourse of mental health in, in North America and the Ang it seems like it's been growing more, more acceptance, like destigmatizing it, but at the same time, it seems like psychoanalysis is kind of delegitimized in at least the Anglo-American world. And I find that those two things kind of happen in parallel, and there's sort of a proliferation of, you know, ultra, I guess what they call evidence-based approaches and i yes. wonder if you had thoughts about like what like how, how that and also the interesting thing that in the latin american world right and in the in france i'm assuming like these things are still like at least lacanian analysis are still pretty popular so i don't know if you had thoughts about that dynamic it's kind of a broad question well it's the reception of adieu lacan uh has been really uh great in mexico in brazil argentina um you know uh, lacanian groups that I would probably never have come into contact with uh, were organized screenings online, and then we have a discussion. And uh, they're great. I mean, they're really so interesting to find um, in areas of Latin America, Central America, um, people who uh, are interested in Lacan. Uh, and um, you know, want to uh, want to to see the film and to discuss it. So that was incredibly exciting and very interesting in terms of 
you know, those countries' own approaches to, to uh, uh, symptoms and, and, and uh, mental health care and uh, you know, very different than that in the United States. Uh, it's certainly the pandemic has brought about a, I would say, a proliferation of, of uh, discourses, uh, discussions around um, um, mental illness, uh, symptoms. At the same time, it's a lot of it seems to be confined within um, a paradigm uh, which is the dominant paradigm. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that up to the Second World War, you know, quantum physics in terms of the paradigmatic science, it was really physics. And then after the war, it becomes biology. Um, and um, in a way for Lacanian psychoanalysis, I think the paradigmatic science in some ways is, is quantum physics. Um, and it's, 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 um, yeah, Zizek mentions that quite a bit. I think this, uh, he brings up the quantum physics example. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was, uh, I had done research, the history of psychiatry section of the pain Whitney, uh, which is the oldest history of psychiatry section in the U S used to be in the basement of the pain Whitney, uh, which if you were insane and, uh, and anyone important, you you, you went mad there. Uh, and William Burroughs, Marilyn Monroe, uh, if, if you became at Payne Whitney, a, um, if you stayed there, they, uh, you had a, a silver napkin ring with your name in grays. Uh, Elizabeth Bishop was there. Um, they had suicide-proof windows. It was built in the 20s. And it was finally torn down in the... 90s. I filmed it after uh, with a little video camera after it had been torn down, and I was just and the people who had been staying in these rooms started to write on the walls with magic markers, and I still have that footage. But it was incorporated afterwards. It was incorporated into the hospital. In other words, today, if you walk, if you go over to the east side, and you look for the Payne Whitney, it's a branch within the hospital. And, you know, if you look at the history of mental health care in the U.S., just in New York, just in New York City, there's this wandering relationship between how close or distant the mental health care is from the physical treatment of physical illnesses. Mm, interesting. And you know, there are times when they've gotten closer or farther <laughs> away there. Um, and, um, and, and now they're really joined at the hip. Um, and, you know, I think there are, you know, I'm not a clinician and I, and I don't pretend to be one. And, and, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, I can't provide that, but certainly there are real pro uh, problems and challenges to that to that paradigm, um, and yep. I think there's a lot of possibilities um, offered by the uh, the alternative paradigm that I think psychoanalysis, and particularly Lacanian psychoanalysis, uh, offers um, 
um, both either directly or through its uh, influence on more traditional treatment modalities. Yeah. I remember one time I was sitting in the backyard of my friend and his dad, who we have a very good conversational uh, relationship. He started talking to me after a few beers about sort of like anxiety. And it was so striking to me, like his anxiety. And it was so striking how he was talking about it in purely scientific terms about like brain chemistry. And he's like, they discovered that there was like this chemical imbalance. And it's like he totally wanted to you know, create this, this objective barrier between him and, and I was so curious. I like, I, I pushed, I prodded a little bit, but he was very resistant to want to talk about it in any, any other terms. Um, well, that, which is well you know, it's the, uh, the, the, the tagline for the film is, uh, or the log line tag, tag is, um, you know, the passion for ignorance, um, you know, is the worst passion of all or, oh. That's People great. often really don't want to know. Yeah. 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 I love that. And I think one of the lines in the film that works against that sort of um, also interpretation that Victor was just discussing is that if we're, you know, if if we forget the past, then we're going to become a victim of it mm-hmm. and to sort of repeat it yes. over and over again. And and the effort to bring back the memories that have been repressed is part of the point of the process, not simply, you know, treating it with drugs, which have their place maybe here and there. Right. But in the end, it's about it's about not just the words you're using, which are the important clue, but also leading the the analysand to bring back the memories that matter because then to another quote life depends on what we can say and i guess you'd say you know being out of sorts depends on what we can't let ourselves say right 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 you mentioned earlier uh richard about um in treatment which i remember kind of enjoying that show it came out a while ago i I did too yeah no, no, no. I wasn't interpreting you as necessarily um, uh, knocking it. Just I knew you were talking about the cinematography style, right? Um, yeah. Not, but I'm cut. But that made me just think, thinking about that, like of the depictions in film of therapy. I was just kind of curious if you had like any favorite depictions aside from your own depiction of therapy in film. You know, there's the Sopranos, obviously, that has that famous oh, yeah. line, and then. And then, uh, yeah, and then obviously, like Cronenberg did that film on Freud, which only showed yes. analysis like very briefly. So they they tend to, you know, films on analysis tend not to show analysis. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It, it's very interesting, even like Shock Corridor, uh, where they okay, we have to go to treatment. Give her a couple injections, you know, <laughs> because they, you know, they they're they're the, the issue of time, um, and even. Uh, uh, you know, John Houston, who did um, this film that I was very interested in for, it was the last of three films he did for the uh, war effort during World War II. It was called Let There Be Light. And it was about returning soldiers who have uh, these post, what we now would call post-traumatic stress disorder. And they're, uh, they go to this hospital in a hospital setting and they're treated with a kind of uh, McDonald's form of psychoanalysis using these these drugs that supposedly speed it up, but he thought <clears throat> he had made these this film which was highly patriotic. But they uh, it was the night it was supposed to be released or premiered at MoMA. 
military police grabbed it and it wasn't released for another 30 years wow at which point when it was finally released people thought you know what what's the big deal it's nothing so you know oh about this <laughs> film but i think in a way you know again it was at a time when they finally decided boy this makes war look bad <laughs> <laughs> uh, because these guys are really messed up you know it really has not been uh kind kind to them um, and I think it was just, there was a, there was a shift. There was a little slight window after the second world war when there was an openness about what had, what had happened. And then it just closed, closed shut really quick. And I think the film bridged it, but, but that gave him the motivation to do, um, a film with Montgomery Clift, which had various different titles included in, in Secret Passion, where Montgomery Cliff plays Sigmund Freud on a um, on a script that was originally written by Jean-Paul Sartre, hmm. and then, you know, went through all kinds of rewrites and everything. And it's still, you know, but again, it's about the discovery of psychoanalysis. And the minute they discover psychoanalysis, the film's over. <laughs> I mean, they... They really that you know, and it's not by chance, you know. I mean, I don't, I, I can't remember how many times I've walked into major museums with shows on the surrealist, and they talk about the surrealists were very interested in the subconscious. No, they weren't interested in the subconscious, <laughs> you know. And it, it's really striking uh, when these major institutions um, start talking about. Uh, you know, somehow uh, a face of the unconscious. Um, so it's it's curious. There uh, there are a few ex examples like that, um, but I'm probably you know repressing my own. I can't. I, you know, I can only think of my own. Uh, <laughs> fair, fair enough. So, you know. I would I would love to know. Um, I don't know as as we wrap up. Um, Richard Leeds, what's uh, what's next for you? What's what is the next project ah, you'll be working on? V thirteen. V thirteen uh, is based on uh, a a play called Vienna nineteen thirteen, uh, which is about uh, two young men who become friends. One uh, is uh, uh, living uh, in the park. He's uh, homeless, loves animals, artist, vegetarian, um, Adolf. And then the other young man is sent to Freud to do an analysis. <laughs> and his symptom, of which uh, he's very embarrassed because he knows better, is that he feels an instinctive uh, revulsion tinged with hatred for Jews. <laughs> and it's <laughs> about the rise of anti-Semitism in Vienna before the First World War. Um, and uh, it was written by uh, uh, Alain Didier Weil, um, my late friend. And I've been working on it for years and years and years. And it predates by, you know, a decade, uh, Adieu Lacan. And, uh, and in a way, it's part of what drew me to Adieu Lacan. Um, and now finally I'm making it, I'm shooting it by, we're shooting it in New York, uh, we're kind of like, like a, like a 
modern dress Shakespeare. We're shooting uh, New York today for Vienna uh, before the First World War um, with some interesting echoes around, uh, you know, uh, some of uh, uh, the rise of fascism, et cetera. So I'm just uh, beginning to cast that. I wish I could share with you uh, some of the, but I can't. Uh, but you know we're we're um, we're working on that, and uh, we'll begin filming that in October. Nice. All right. Awesome. That sounds exciting. Yeah. That's excellent. Um, one final question, very quickly. <laughs> if people have been uh, listening to this, I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode that this is available. You can rent it through uh, Amazon app and the Apple app. I was wondering if those are that's right, or how are you sending people to be able to watch this? Right. If they're overseas, they should go to uh, my uh, website, uh, richardleeds.com. That's R-I-C-H-A-R-D-L-E-D-E-S.com. And for that film and for the other films as well, we have links. The reason that's important is because Amazon and uh, Apple are only for English-speaking countries. And a lot of the interest in the film uh, is from overseas. And uh, so the film is available uh, through uh, a platform called Eventive. If you're in, uh, for example, Mexico or, or, or France or Argentina. So um, uh, for those, those listeners, that's where they can, they can find a link that they can by which they can view the film. So if you, no matter where you are, if you go to your website, you can find something that fits or that works for you. That's right. Okay. I will put that in the show notes, uh, richardleads.com. Thank you so much for uh, coming and hanging out with us. We had a great time. This was uh, a little bit outside of our normal capacity, but I think uh, all of us (laughs) enjoyed it looking at, Eric's, yeah. Eric's smiling face yeah. through the Zoom This was call. a great treat. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's, it was. For me as well. For me as well. I'm very, uh, you know, again, you're, I'm very grateful to have this discussion. Great. All right. Excellent. As are we. Thank you, listeners. If you have made it all the way to the end, uh, this has been, what are we on? 91? 91 or so. And uh, thank you, Richard. <laughs> yeah. And we'll see thank you, you next Bill. week. Eric. All right.